There are beginning, middles, and ends to problems, just like in life. And when the middle is open, then there are many strategies. And you can have really interesting conversations about the different strategies and build everyone's understanding in a way that kids find engaging. Hello, Montgomery County. My name is Brandon Langer, and I am the host of the OPL podcast from MCIU. Thank you for joining us in for season three of the OPL podcast. We're excited to kick off this season uh, with Mr. Robert Kaplinski, but I'm joined today by a wonderful colleague, Steph Schwab, and I'll let her introduce herself and a little bit about uh, our special guest today and why we're able to have him on the podcast. So Steph, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks, Brandon. Hi, everyone. Steph Schwab, STEM Program Administrator at Montgomery County Intermediate Unit. We're excited to have Robert joining us today to talk all things math and to talk about a session that he'll be doing with us in person in October at the IU. Robert is a math educator, author, and content creator, and we're excited to have him join us. And I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself before we get started. Hey, everyone. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm Robert Kaplinski. I've been a math educator since 2003, and really I'm motivated by uh, trying to do the opposite of the experiences I had when I was a student. I think if you're anything like me, you might have been able to do math, but didn't necessarily understand what they were doing. And that can be pretty challenging when you start becoming a math teacher and you realize that maybe you're doing the same thing to your own students. So really, I'm motivated by trying to break that cycle. Excellent. So I think that's a great lead into one of our first questions that we wanted to pose to you is, what is your number one suggestion for teachers on how they can unlock student mathematical thinking? So I, I'm pretty biased, uh, but I think that the, the best bang for buck thing that we could be doing for students as math teachers is using something called open middle. There's a lot of things I love doing. I love real world problems and stuff like that, but those are pretty challenging to integrate into what you're already doing if you haven't had experience with it. Uh, but with an open middle problem, it's it really fits in seamlessly with where you would do classwork or homework and the results that you get for from the students, like the, the enthusiasm, the engagement, the, the deeper understanding is, is not like anything you would get from a typical worksheet. Uh, if you're curious, you know, is this guy really telling the truth? Is this really what happens? Uh, if you go on Twitter, if you're on social media, if you go onto Twitter and look at the hashtag why open middle, W-H-Y open middle, uh, you see lots and lots of tweets of teachers from everything from early elementary all the way through calculus talking about how you know, kids didn't want to go to recess or kids were asking for more or kids were disappointed when it stopped or kids keep asking for these kinds of problems. Like, I don't remember that happening a lot when I was a student. I don't honestly remember that happening a lot when I was teaching. Uh, but since then, I've been using these problems. A lot of teachers have used these problems and the, the regains that they get, the experiences they have have been what I believe is like the single most important change that teachers can make. So when you talk about open middle, you are one of the, the co-founders of open middle type problems. Where did the idea to begin open middle come from? So it's a strategy that you say that you've seen great success with, but kind of what is open middle and what can you expect from your students when they're working through those types of problems? Sure. So the idea of open middle first, actually, I had first uh, heard of it uh, watching Dan Meyer give a presentation on how to make math more like video games. And he used an analogy um, I think I'll, I'll use a slightly different video game. He used uh, Super Mario Brothers, but I'll use Miss Pac-Man. So if you think of Miss Pac-Man, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? The beginning is that you start at that like bottom center spot, and the end is you get all the dots. And what makes it interesting is not the beginning or the end, it's the middle. Uh, where are you going to go? Are you going to you know, eat a ghost? Are you going to avoid narrowly getting caught by one? Are you going to eat a, a fruit? And I think that what's important to realize is a lot of times we say as teachers, I love open-ended problems. 
But I think it's actually a misnomer. A lot of times what we really like is a problem that ends with every kid having the same answer, but lots of beautiful strategies for how they solved it. In that case, it's not an open-ended problem. It's a closed-ended problem. Everyone had the same answer. And most problems are closed beginning. You all have the same problem to start with. What's really interesting then is when it has the same answer and you start with the same problem, but there were many strategies to solve it, then the middle is open. And, you know, it's the same with, say, like reality TV. If you watch The Amazing Race, it's the same thing every single season. It starts with lots of contestants. It ends with one wins. What's open is the middle. You want to see what happens along the way. And that formula works really well in mathematics as well. So I'll give you an example of like an open middle problem. Imagine uh, a fraction where it has a two-digit denominator and a two-digit numerator. And instead of the digits, you've got a box there. So you've got two boxes on the top and two boxes on the bottom. Now you can pick digits between one and nine to fill those boxes. There are only four boxes. So you're only going to use four of the digits. And the goal is to make a fraction that's as close to one as possible. So maybe you pick one and two for the numerator and three and four for the denominator. Now you've made 12 over 34. Is that the closest you can make to, uh, of a fraction to get to one? You know, what would you, if, if it isn't, then what would you do to change it? And what I think is really interesting to think about is like, it's got a very low floor, like any four digits, literally any four digits between one and nine, you can put in there and you have something, you're in the game. But the ceiling's high, like trying to get that best fraction, like can you even get one? What would it take to get one? If you can't get one, what's the closest you could get? So it's got a very high ceiling as well, which is, it's not usually, you know, sometimes you think you either make this accessible for all and now some people are not challenged or you make it really challenging and some people don't have an entry point. But the problem like this, I think you can see that it actually hits both and uh, you can crush oftentimes. I mean, one of the things you hear is parents are like, my kid's bored in your class. We need to skip them to the next grade level. But the reality is you can absolutely crush kids with grade level standards. I mean, if I'm being real, I've made problems that I have no idea how to solve. And there's things I should be able to solve. And it's really humbling when you start to realize that there are gaps in our own understanding. And if we have gaps, I can promise you your kids have gaps too. So at a high level, again, there are beginning, middles, and ends to problems, just like in life. And when the middle is open, then there are many strategies. Some people might use a guess and check strategy. Some might think, oh, I want to make the denominator as large as possible. Some might think, I want to make my numerator and my denominator as close together as possible. And you can have really interesting conversations about the different strategies and build everyone's understanding in a way that kids find engaging. I love the comparison you made to video games. It speaks to me as a video gamer, but not the least of which is a lot of modern games are just that. I'm going to drop you in a massive environment that is going to take you days, weeks to navigate and find your, your center and, and get to the end point. That's really common. That's actually a common experience for anyone that plays video games. It's just being dropped in the middle of something and having to find your way through it. And I, I love that comparison into that type of problem because that then becomes more familiar to some, even though it seems more broad. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, right? A, a metaphor I like to use is that I, as a teacher, see myself as a, a spotter with my students being the bench presser. And the spotter's job is not to lift the weight. The spotter is to give literally the least amount of help possible so that the, the bench presser can do the majority of the weight lifting. Uh, if the spotter helps too much, the spotter gets stronger, not the bench presser. And if the bench press, if, if the spotter does too little, you know, the bench presser dies. So our goal then is to figure out like, what is that least amount of help so that it still feels doable, but like maybe just outside of what you can, you believe you could do. And I think a good video game and a good math problem share that similar quality where 
it's not telling you exactly what to do, but it's also not so overwhelming that you want to quit. And finding that just right spot is tricky, but very, very worthwhile. A lot of parallels to sports could be easily drawn too, Steph. I know you're a fellow coach, but I mean, why do we play the game? Because the middle is what is unknown, right? We know the clock's going to hit zero. We know there's two teams. Let's see who 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 puts together the best path to, to put it forward. It's an interesting concept, Steph. This is the first time I'm hearing it, so I'm like digesting. I think it's very cool. That's and great. it's not to say that just using boxes is the only way to do it, but right. uh, we've definitely found that it doesn't have to be either or. Either we make it so challenging that some kids are lost or we make it so accessible that some kids are bored. Uh, you can do both simultaneously and uh, a lot of other issues go away. Classroom management issues go away because kids are engaged. They want to do it. It's not my intention to say this is the most important change. It's not my intention to say it's the only change. I just think that it's got a really good ratio of benefits compared to the amount of energy it takes to like make this practice happen in your in your classroom. I agree, Robert. The other piece that I think about too is often we get um, educators and administrators saying, I need to differentiate more in my math classroom. Well, if you put open middle problems in front of kids, you've already naturally differentiated because of that low floor and high ceiling that you're talking about. Everybody's got an entry point. So I don't need to come up with a problem for you and a problem for you and a problem for you. The open middle problems already do that naturally for students. Yeah. And, and if I could make a recommendation, if you're listening to this and you're in the car or somewhere where you can't uh, go easily, I'll give you a way or two ways really to, to get started with this if you're interested. One is if you go to the website, openmiddle.com, like it sounds, O-P-E-N-M-I-D-D-L-E.com. On the homepage, there's a blue button that says, get our favorite problems from every grade level. So we have a PDF that has uh, a link, I'm sorry, a PDF that has uh, problems from kindergarten through calculus with our favorite problem from each grade level. So this is not a, just a secondary or just an elementary thing. This is an everybody thing. Um, so you can get that and it'll send it to you right away um, and some more information. Uh, you can also, if you're interested, I've made matrices that show, so these kinds of problems are, are at higher depth of knowledge levels. Uh, generally speaking, depth of knowledge level two and three on web's depth of knowledge matrix. So on my website, robertkaplinski.com, uh, if you go under problems, there's a link for open middle problems. I've made matrices for third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, all the way through algebra two that have just your grade level with standards and shows you what this problem, what the standard would look like at, you know, depth of knowledge level one, which is basically what you see in your textbook uh, or on a standardized test all the way through two and three. I've also got broader ones that are like just elementary that has like, you know, K2 in the front and 3.5 in the back and secondary that's middle school in the front and high school in the back. But um, yeah, if you're wondering what this looks like, those are two options to kind of see what it looks like for you. One of the other areas that we see often when we see your work is the observe me movement that you've talked <laughs> about often. If you could share a little bit about that and where your thinking behind that came from as well. Yeah, in some ways, the whole observe me movement is preposterous. Like. The fact that we need it or that people care about it is why it exists. And here's what I mean. Like, when you were a student teacher, you were required to observe other teachers. And I'm sure in those moments, you saw things that were like, uh, this is amazing. I can't wait to do it. And also, I don't know why the heck that teacher thinks that strategy is going to work. I'm never going to do anything like that. And these experiences helped you kind of mold yourself into who you want to be and who you did not want to be. And then somehow we just like sort of stop doing that entirely. We don't observe other teachers. Other teachers don't observe you. Um, if they do observe you, it's closer to being some sort of like penalty. Like, 
you are getting observed and we're going to see if you should continue to become a teacher or, you know, some sort of negative. Being observed is not associated with anything positive in general. So the whole observe me movement came from this realization that uh, someone had posted a sign saying, uh, please come and observe me. And um, they listed a couple of things that they want to feedback on. And from that, someone shared that and a tweet and it went viral. And it shocked me in the sense that something so basic as, hey, could you give me feedback if you're around would be so revolutionary for education. And, and simultaneously, everyone gets that this is revolutionary and that it should not be revolutionary. And so see, seeing this, I sort of kind of formalized this. I came up with a hashtag, observe me. I asked people to come up with, you know, two to three things that they would like people to give them feedback on and then to post it on their wall, you know, outside their classroom so people would know what to do. Um, to give an example, I mean, I, as a secondary math teacher specialist for uh, Downey Unified School District in Southern California, had some of the best experiences. And here's what I mean. We did a lot of lesson study. I don't know. It got to be somewhere like 75 days of lesson study. And in that, I probably grew more from those experiences than anything else I've had in my career because I was literally getting paid to either observe other great teachers teach or create lessons with other teachers and then try them out and see like what went well, what didn't, and then revise that process. And I learned so much from it. And I was like, how do other teachers not get these opportunities? And so I thought that <laughs> by doing that, you'd have this benefit. Um, it's been interesting. Sometimes people will say like, I want feedback on student engagement. And then even just what the hell does student engagement mean? Like, does that mean like everyone's sitting with their hands clasped and looking forward? Does that mean everyone talking? Does that mean, and then the evolution of how do you ask for feedback? For example, some people will say, I want student, I want feedback on student engagement. And then the next evolution is, am I doing a good job with student engagement? Well, when you craft a question like that, no one ever says no. It's always yes, but also yes as feedback is perfectly unhelpful. And then crafting the question into like a growth mindset with a how, how can I do a better job with student engagement? So it's actively requesting feedback that you can get that is useful. And so just, you know, thinking about all the different complexities in there, like when you're always being observed and it's never anything you want, you're not used to asking for constructive criticism. Um, so just that whole experience has been really validating. I will say that uh, it went way more viral than I expected. It started, I think, in 2016 and uh, lots of subjects, lots of countries, lots of grade levels. I think I'll, I'll summarize it, include it by saying the smartest people are the people you're working with. And you can learn more from just observing them than you can from a lot of PD. But we don't really make time for that. I mean, there's logistical nightmares. I, I get that you might need someone to cover you or think you all teach math at the same time or something like that. But uh, these are things that I think are worth fighting for. And maybe as we're slowly coming out of pandemic places and things have been going on, we can get back to some of that more in person and maybe we can revitalize that, that hashtag a little bit as well in our region. I think some of it too is that power of seeing what others are even asking about is informative for you as well. But maybe I didn't even think about that in my classroom with my students and I should pay attention to that a little bit as well in what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I want you to think about it is this. I think observe me often or being observed often seems scary, but mm -hmm. like if you're a secondary teacher, this will make a little more sense as an example, but like every time you teach your first period lesson, it's crap. Like you tried your best, but it's just not that great. By the second, third, fourth, fifth time, 
What do you expect? If you do, do it five times, it's going to get better by the fifth time. Now, imagine if you could have microphones and cameras all over the room. You would collect so much better information about what's going on and make improvements even faster. So the observation is that, I mean, if you could have another human in the room collecting information on the thing you cared about, you would improve that much quicker. And that's really what Observe Me is about. Maybe you start with someone that is like a close friend and you really trust this person. Uh, it, it definitely doesn't work with someone in your room that you don't trust or that you think will tell everyone all your you know biggest fears. But if you find the right person, they're literally giving you, help, you know, information that you requested to help you become the teacher you want to be. In, and that's invaluable. Totally agree. Yeah. And I think a, a proof of accelerated uh, example in, in what you just said about collecting different points of view is how quickly districts had to pivot to online learning, virtual learning, distance learning. We now, when we invited a bunch of parents, kids, and people that we regularly don't have in our classrooms, we're there every day. And you saw, while it wasn't home for a lot of teachers, I, I can say at what I saw as an online learning you know, specialist in, in, in our field, you saw rapid acceleration and improvement over a short period of time in practice. And a lot of that was, was due to feedback on what you're saying, the district hearing, putting it into actual steps and making it better. Also saw this awesome collaborative nature amongst teachers to put heads together, to really come together and, and contribute to one another's environment. So not everyone had to lift on their own. And if there's anything post-pandemic that I hope we, we take with us, it's that. It's the nature of, it's not just me opening my file cabinet and saying, here's my summative test from the past 20 years. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about true instructional practice and learning environment and the ability to share and collaborate around that. Yeah. A quote I like saying is, the group is always smarter than the smartest person in the group. And if you could take the best ideas from you and all your colleagues at your school, you would be better than any single teacher perhaps in history. So I think that we're fools to not try to learn from our colleagues and, you know, both observing them and them observing you. So that's, that's what I advocate for. Thank you. I think the last question we would like to wrap <laughs> up with today is what can participants expect from attending your session at MCIU on October 27th? All right. So I, I will say that the, the day is basically broken up into four parts. Um, the first part is really, we all struggle with this reality where we ask students questions and when they get them right, we assume that they understand what we're talking, what they're talking about. At the same time, we also know that that also totally happens and they don't have any clue what they're talking about. Like you ask them a question, everything seems great. And later you're like, oh my gosh, they don't know what they're talking about. And I think this reality is worth unpacking because our Quizzes, our tests, our state standardized assessments are often measuring in that same way. And there's a very good chance we get both false positive and false negative results. And I want to unpack why that happens and what we can do about it. Um, I think also as teachers, uh, we find situations where we teach students something and then we check back in a week, a month later, it's like they have no recollection of ever learning that. At the same time, if you think about urban legends, you hear this urban legend that you know is not true. Uh, once and you know, in some shape or form, you remember for for ages. And the question I have then is, what can we learn about why urban legends are so memorable that we can use to apply to make the what we teach in mathematics memorable as well? Um, I want to talk about we use word problems. Word problems are in our textbooks, they're in our standardized assessments, but like in real life, there's not paragraphs to read and do things with. 
we have context, we have real world, but not like literally sentences to read. So I wonder if we should reconsider using word problems and what we should be doing instead. And I've got some ideas to kind of help you see more of a, maybe think of like a chiropractic adjustment. You knew that word problems are not exactly what you want to be using, but you weren't sure how to get it to where you want it to be. And, and I think I'll share something that will help you there. And finally, uh, spoilers has to do with open middle, but oftentimes we think that we either have to choose between making math accessible or challenging, and there's not really clear paths on how to do both. And so we'll go deeply into that. And <laughs> something new, Steph, I cannot wait to try with your teachers. I've only done it a couple of times now is uh, I went into classrooms and recorded video using my 360 camera with a 360 microphone. So I literally put it there. And normally when you observe teachers or observe a classroom, uh, you only see what's in front of you and that's it. Or maybe the camera moves around. This camera, literally, you can see up, down, left, right. You can see the ceiling or the floor. You can see literally whatever you want to see. You can look at whatever you want to look at. And so I've got classroom footage of people doing this kind of mathematics that you can interact with however you want to interact with. And it's been getting some pretty rave reviews so far. So I'm looking forward to trying that out with your teachers as well. Excellent. That sounds really powerful. Not only that part, but the entire day. We always enjoy when we can spend a day with someone who spends much of their life in the math world and figuring out what will work best with students in the classroom and getting them to be the, the problem solvers and problem finders and problem thinkers that we want them to be. So we're excited for you to join us uh, in the end of October and have participants in the room to have rich discussion with as well. I really cannot wait. I love this stuff and it's uh, thrilling that this is the career I have. Well, Robert, thank you again for joining Steph and I in this conversation for our podcast to kick off the season. I'll be dropping in, no doubt, to kind of hear more about what, what your work entails and can't wait to see what you do with our teachers. Uh, for anybody that this may be your first OPL podcast, we have a whole history, as you said, this is season three. So there's a whole history of, of podcasts for you to listen in on the great consultants and guest speakers like Robert that come and join us for these sessions. We are also relaunching a fresh version of the MCIU Learning Network this fall that should be launching any day now, which is learn.mciu.org. We'll no doubt have uh, this offering and other information and, and examples tied to it and this podcast hosted on that site. So we hope you'll follow us there as well as on social media. Uh, thank you, Steph. Thank you, Robert. And thank you to everybody for listening. We'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.